0: Today we begin a new series that we will take a break from for a couple of weeks. <laughs> because we won't be back with it until January. But we start off here in the book of Ezra. We're looking at the process of restoration. That redemption is instantaneous, but restoration is a process. And sometimes we kind of expect restoration to be as quick as redemption. And when it doesn't happen, we get, we can get frustrated with God. We can get frustrated with the things of God. But there is a time that's necessary in order to bring the restoration process around. And that's what we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Israel is coming back, as promised, from the captivity. And they will come into the land. But it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long period of time. And so we're going to be breaking down the book of Ezra here first. Taking a look at the things that we can learn from, from it. And tonight we'll be taking on chapter 1 as well as some of the history of of all this. And what we see here leading up to this particular time is that the end is coming. At least that's what the people of Judah should be thinking about. From the time that Daniel had received the revelation that he had, they knew that 70 years were determined. And Daniel discovered this towards the end of the 70 years. So the people should be thinking, alright, the end is about here. We're about at the end of this. Something is going to change. Something is going to happen. The verses that Daniel was looking at, let's just review those. Jeremiah twenty-five eleven and 12. This whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation in the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. Further down, Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So they had 70 years that was determined. Did the people get ready for a 70-year stay? Or did they set their eyes on the best life they can make in a foreign land? Now God foretold of a change coming and there would be those that would be looking for the change. There would be those who wish wish for it but they doubt as it's been so long. Well, I wish that we would come out of this captivity but it, boy, it's been so long, I don't know that that's really going to happen. So there'll be those people that'll be thinking along those lines. There'll be those who exchange their love for the homeland for what they had now. Well, I don't have that anymore. I love what it was but I've got this now. I'm just going to love what I have here now. There are those who don't know of the homeland and Babylon is good for them. This is all they know. And so those people, they may not be too apt to be looking towards God restoring anything. And then those who gave up on God, gave into idols, they gave into false gods and false truths and are angry at God for the judgment that came. These are the kind of people that are there in the captivity in Babylon. These are the things that shape what a person is looking for, what a person is listening for. Now, when we get about Cyrus, we know that Cyrus is the one who starts this off. There is much legend that surrounds Cyrus. And I'll leave you to look that up on the Internet. If you'd like to, you can look up some of the things that are written about him. It was hard for me to distinguish between what was legend and what was truth. So I didn't really write anything much down to, to get into. But he was a very well-beloved, very very um, liked ruler. He's actually Cyrus the Second, known better as Cyrus the Great. He was held in high regard by the Persians. He was seen as a merciful conqueror, and he allowed great freedom to his subjects. Even Alexander the Great held him up as a very respective leader and someone to emulate. Now Ezra is a history and a pretty much a pretty simple history. Ezra is the person who actually wrote Chronicles. Now, of course, when it was written, it was written as Chronicles. It was not written as First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. It was written as Chronicles and they divided it up just to make it easier for us. Same thing with King, same thing with Samuel. They were just written as one book. Ezra wrote, recorded all those things, uh, for us. In the book of Chronicles, also he did Ezra, and there's some who feel that he did parts of Nehemiah as well. I've seen a note that there is no book of Scripture that has fewer difficulties or fewer obscurities. It's pretty straightforward. Last time we were in the Old Testament, we were looking at Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is on the opposite spectrum of Ezra. All kinds of difficulties, all kinds of things that people say, oh, that can't be true, that couldn't have happened. But Ezra is not that way. It's pretty straightforward. There's no miracle recorded in it. It is pretty much just historical truth. This is this is what happened. The language closely resembles that of the other books of Scripture. It's written about the same time as Chronicles, Daniel, and Haggai. And like Daniel, it is written partially in Hebrew, partially in Chaldea. The latter being the form which Hebrew had assumed during the captivity. It uh, is like the book of Esther in that it contains a number of Persian words. And I guess as we'll go on through, we'll probably point some of those out. The um, man Ezra, <coughs> Ezra is actually one of the most reputable Jews in their history. In fact, many people put him second only to Moses. And as far as his standing with the Jews... He just had a, he was held in very, very high esteem. And, uh, even though the book that we have by his name does not seem to be all that great, he was seen as someone very great in the Jewish history. So let's get over here to the book of Ezra, verse one of chapter one. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... And then we'll get on to what he said here. But here we have Cyrus. He was used by God. He is a heathen king. He serves idols. But he was used by God. When we look at this, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, we can sometimes get a misunderstanding... Of who Cyrus is? Is Cyrus a just a a born again, uh, God fearing king who just slipped into the Persian realm? Uh, what was this? Who was this Cyrus guy? And he was very uh, very nice. He was very kind to the people that he conquered. He let them worship as they wanted to worship. He let them uh, go and do what they wanted to do. But um, this was someone who was at least open for God to be used. So I asked this question. Can God use any king? If God could use a heathen king like Cyrus, can he use any king? So I wrote down some things. Put them. I gave you some space if you want to write it down, if it means anything to you. You can do that. But there are different kind of leaders to God. There are those, first off, the first group would be those that are submitted. And they follow his leading and word. These would be the easiest ones for God to use. They're submitted to him. They look for, for him to do. David was certainly one of these. He was submitted to God. He looked for the leading of God. It was very easy for God to use someone like David. Hezekiah, Asa, these are all kings who were very submitted to God, and it was very easy for God to, to use them. There are those who are partially submitted. They may follow his leading and, and word, uh, but they also may not. Sometimes they must, they just do what they, own, but they want to do themselves, but they're partially submitted. A lot of Christians are partially submitted. They're not fully submitted. They're just partially submitted. I'll usually do what God wants me to do, but every once in a while, you know, I I think this is part of the word is outdated. I don't think I really need to follow this. And so we're partially submitted, even though I may call myself fully submitted. We are partially submitted. And there are some kings and there's some leaders in the world that would come under this partially submitted. Now, God can still use them, but there are times they're not going to be used by God because they're going to decide to do their own thing. And certainly Israel has their... Uh, history of kings who were partially submitted. We also have those that are not very submitted. They will do the God thing when it makes reasonable sense. If I can understand why I should do the God thing, I'll go ahead and do the God thing. But if I can't reason out why I should do the God thing, if it doesn't make sense to me, then I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what makes reasonable sense to do. And there are these that are in, their, in the word as well. Uh, we can't call them really all that submitted at all. Um, they may stumble upon the doing the will of God. They may do the will of God because it looks like it, it makes the best sense, but uh, not necessarily. Sometimes, you know, even, even in our country, we'll see presidents uh, not necessarily submitted to God, but they may do the God thing because it makes sense to them. They understand this to be a good thing to do, and so they go ahead and do it. and not necessarily submitted to God, but they will go off there and they, they do that as well. Then there are those that are deceived. They think they serve God and know his will, but they actually don't. They're deceived. I think I'm doing the will of God. I've told myself I'm doing the will of God, but uh, I'm not. Uh, Saul certainly fell into this category towards the end when he said, Look how obedient I've been to the Lord. <laughs> when What's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Uh, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that what I want to do is what God wants to do. And there are leaders that are deceived. And the further down you move into this list, the less able God is able to use them. Because God does not take over anyone and make them do stuff. They need to decide. And that goes for kings, that goes for presidents, that goes for governors, that goes for leaders of any country, just as much as it does for people. God's not going to force anybody to become born again. He's not going to force them to do what God wants to do. So many times leaders do their own thing. But the more submitted a king is, then the easier that's going to be for God to use them. Another group is a unsubmitted to God. They do the right thing when they want to. Why didn't you do that? I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that thing over there. I am unsubmitted. I'm not deceived. I'm just unsubmitted. I know that's this God wants me to do these things. I know His Word says this. I'm not doing that. I don't want to. It's not popular. People don't like it when I do that sort of thing. I'm doing it this way. So we're not deceived. We're just unsubmitted. And that's certainly a group of, of uh, people that would call themselves Christians as well as leaders. They are unsubmitted. unsubmitted. It's harder for God to use them than it is for some of the other categories. Then there's another group Mostly resistant to God. Not only are they unsubmitted, but they actually begin to resist the things of God. They see the things of God and they say, no, that's the move of God. I don't like that. I'm going to be resistant to it. That would be another group. And then the final one I wrote down in here is those that are completely resistant. They are against God and those that are His. Boy, you saw this probably the most clear with some of the Caesars. They came out in the Roman Empire, because we have a good bit of history that came up with them. And they saw Christians, and they just burned against them. And they wanted to kill them. They wanted to slaughter them. They set them on fire. They fed them to the lions. They did all sorts of stuff. They were completely resistant. They were completely against God. And in the letters to the seven churches, we see some of the things that were written to them. As they faced kings, that were completely resistant to the things of God. And actually came against his people. Now as far as Cyrus is concerned, Cyrus is not coming in the number one group there. He's not a submitted guy. At best, he's probably a number two or number three. At best, I would probably put him into a partially submitted, though I think that's a stretch. I think he is in a not very submitted, but will do the will of God when it makes a reasonable sense. I think it's more into into that area. But let's go on here in verse verse 2. Let's get into his proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Now this is a really curious statement here. This is a heathen king. All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judea or Judah. Now how did this command come to him? How did he hear this command? In um, Isaiah 44, verse 28, this is uh, the prophet speaking, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So this is a prediction. This is a, a prophecy that was given to Isaiah. In chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, To subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight and I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. And I will give you treasure of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I the Lord who call you by your name am the God of Israel for Jacob my servant's sake in Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I have named you, though you have not known me. Now this seems to be that the hand of the Lord is very much upon Cyrus in bringing him around to to conquer and so forth. And uh, this is probably a story that many of you will remember, especially if you've been through the End Times class, because I love telling this story. It was one of the most remarkable stories i had had heard outside of a school setting on um, some of the history of this but in um, when we were down in bible land down in florida uh the uh, my only thing i wanted to sit through was through a um, lecture that's how it was listed it was listed as a lecture that was given on prophecy on end time prophecy and so i sat through this this lecture and this uh professor got up there and he was uh, talking about things and he gave a story about alexander the great that to me was remarkable, in that Alexander the Great had a dream, and a man appeared to him in this dream, and it told him that he would conquer the world, and it told him how he would conquer the world, and it gave him a path for which he would go and conquer the world, and he had followed that that path, he didn't just take any arbitrary way to, to go, he had actually followed a path in a way that, uh, uh, of conquering the world, and um, as he was had come to the city of Tyre and he fulfilled some of the prophecies that Ezekiel had given, some of these incredible prophecies, he was faced with the task of uh, attacking this island, uh, nation of Tyre, that was off the mainland. It was on the island. And so he had sent to the neighboring nations, come help me to do this, pointing to the neighboring nations, you must decide which side will you be on are you going to be on the side of, of, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire or are you going to be on the side of the up and coming Grecian Empire? You have to decide. And so the nations will say, well, we, we'd rather stay with them. We think they're going to win in the end or no, we'll go with you. We think that you'll win in the end. Uh, you're basically gambling because whoever you didn't go with, if they lost, then they would come after you as, as well. So messengers were sent to Israel. Israel uh, decided to keep their alliance with the uh, Medo-Persian Empire and told Alexander, no, we will not come and help you. So that made him very mad. And so when he uh, had gone on, and then he continued to go on down, and his uh, particular way was to go on down to Egypt. Egypt just surrendered. They built the city of Alexandria, and they said, we are submitted to you. We don't want to fight you. We, are, we realize that you are stronger than we are. And we will build this city, name it after you. And so the city of Alexandria was born and built and became a very great city. And so they went on from there, and they were working their way on up. And as they were moving their way on up, Alexander told the men, "When we get to Israel, you guys can do whatever you want. I'm not holding you back. You can pillage, you can take, you can destroy, you can burn, you can whatever you want to do." And so the men they can't wait to get to Israel. We are just gonna we're gonna get rich. We're gonna take all their stuff. We're gonna do whatever we want to do. And so when they arrived on there, there was a delegation, as is normally done, a delegation was sent out from Israel to the um, Grecian army, and when Alexander saw them approach, he told his men, wait here, and he went out by himself, which is very unusual. Kings do not go out by themselves to meet a delegation, but he went out by himself. He talked with them for a little while, and then he came back to his men, and he said, all right, men, we're moving on. And they never went in, they never destroyed Jerusalem, they didn't attack, Jerusalem just surrendered, and they came under the rule of Alexander, and uh never gave an explanation to his men, and as they went on for a couple of days, some of the people that were closest to him were approached by the men and said, what happened? What was going on? Why did we not go in? Why did you not let us do all the things you said we could do when we got to the land of Israel? And so he confided into uh one of his uh, closest men there, he said... Before we started on this, I had a dream, and a man appeared to me, and he told me how I would conquer the world. He told me how I would go about it, and we have followed that plan to this day. I have never seen that man before. i would never seen anyone like that man before. But when that delegation came out, the high priest in that delegation was dressed exactly like the man in my dream. And I knew that their God was the one who sent that message to me. Now, he was not a submitted king at all to God, but he was able to be used by God at that particular point. God didn't want his uh, nation being destroyed. could be that he sent prophets to them and said, hey, help Al- Alexander. I don't know what was going on in the land of Israel then. Maybe they were disobedient, but God came through and he, he uh, planned for this ahead of time, having someone dressed up in the um, high priest robes, and that uh, satisfied Alexander. Something like that may have happened with Cyrus. When Cyrus came in, and sometimes we don't always tie all the things together in Scripture, but as it said here, it was the first year of Cyrus. The first year of Cyrus. I'm not going to read this for us here tonight, but if you want to read this going home. In Daniel chapter 5, we have a feast that was given in the city of Babylon. It is known as Belshazzar's Feast. At the feast, they called for the uh, the things that were taken from the temple to be brought out to the party. They wanted to use them in their partying. And so as they brought out these holy uh, instruments for worship, and used them in their party, a hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And no one could understand what was written. Daniel was called in because they had remember, somebody had remembered he used to be a big part of the kingdom. And surely he would, he would understand what's, if anyone could understand what's going on, he could. Because he had apparently fallen out of favor with the people that were there. They're probably even more evil than Nebuchadnezzar was. And they didn't want someone that righteous being around. And so he was still around, but he was not very prominent in the kingdom under this particular king. But they called him in, and he was able to read it. And he told them there were four words that were on there. And if you want to go back to there, you can read all that. But he basically told them, your time is up. You have been measured and found wanting. And your time is up. This night, this city will fall. And so they uh, thanked him for it. And they said, we're going to make you third ruler of course they promised him that if you can read this we'll make you the third ruler of the kingdom and uh he said I don't care what you make me <laughs> I don't I don't I don't care to have it uh but he they made him that anyway third ruler of a kingdom is going to fall that night that, uh that's a great position to be in this is what happened the the reason that it fell is because the persians came against them the person who's running the persian army and going about conquering is Cyrus the great person on the other side of the wall is Cyrus. When the city falls, do you think there is an outside chance that the man Daniel and the man Cyrus meet? Daniel is just made the third third uh, ruler of the nation of that uh, that country. Surely he is going to be brought in. If you remember, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, that the prophet Jeremiah was brought to Nebuchadnezzar and he found favor with Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar knew, you prophesied, you told them to surrender. He knew all these things that were going on. More than likely, Cyrus knows what Daniel has said and that Daniel has told them, this city will fall tonight. So he knows that Daniel has made this prophecy that this city would fall tonight and he has a command from the Lord on the things that he was doing in the area of conquering. I I don't see how those two paths don't cross. And in doing so, does Daniel give him any of these words, any of this encouragement? Does any of the words from God come through Daniel? Does Daniel say anything to him about doing the will of God and the prosperity that will come Because he talked to him about how Nebuchadnezzar, how the Babylonians came against the things of God, how they came against Israel, how they're being punished for what they did to Israel. And that may have gotten Cyrus' attention. And so that Cyrus is paying mind to him. Because again, person, some people are submitted, but only when they see that it benefits me. I'll do what God wants as long as I get something out of this. And this could be something that Cyrus did. I'm sure that Daniel had some kind of a hand in Cyrus uh, being so benevolent to the children of Israel and actually financing their trip back home to rebuild. He was a benevolent ruler, but I don't know that he too often paid for everybody to go on home or one or two and to uh, build their temple. But here he is. So somehow I think Daniel was involved But we'll have to wait till we get to heaven, I guess, to see the videotape and all the things that may have gone on. But with Daniel having some kind of interaction with him, and of course, Daniel comes in a place of prominence in the Persian Empire as well. That probably comes about something on this night that he is brought into the area of leadership and they see the hand of God on him. They see that the things that he has said so far have come to pass. And in their own kingdom, things that Daniel has said has also come to pass. And the kings of that nation also became dependent upon Daniel. Now, as you remember, in the days of David, and David wanted to build a house for God, God said, no, you are a man of war. And you are not going to build my house, but uh, your son will build the house. If God didn't want uh, David to build him a house who was a man after his own heart who was submitted to God. Why would he want Cyrus to build him a house? But he's he's very clear about it, that Cyrus has a directive from God and the prophecies are, are there. Well, more than likely, all you have here is Cyrus is not building this house. He is doing basically the same thing that David did. He is financing it and he's authorizing it. That's really all that David did. David financed it and David authorized it. But it was Solomon who put it together. And so is actually someone from the house of Israel who came on down of the lineage of David. And we'll get into him as we get into the chapters that are about this down the road. Let's go on to verse three. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So he is calling here for, not only for the temple to be rebuilt, but he's also calling for the people in the land to head on out there and to to do this. Now he's doing all this from Babylon. In the book of Daniel, we've made this point when we've gone through here before, Babylon had its capital at Babylon. Persia had three different capitals for their kingdom. Babylon served as their winter cap- capital, and so it would move around in, in different places. But Babylon was the Persian capital during the the winter months. They would have it uh, have it at that point. When Alexander came by, his capital of course, was in the land of Greece until he conquered Babylon. When he conquered Babylon, he made that his capital, and he went out from there and then came back. And he spent his last days over in the area of Babylon. Babylon was the capital. So you have those three kingdoms: the Babylonian, you had the the Medo-Persian, and the Grecian Empire. All had their their main city, their capital, as Babylon. The problem comes in is that Rome does not have their city as uh, their capital city as Babylon. And many people have explained it, and I certainly explained it when I thought it was this way too that when Rome is, is uh, revived, that it will then make its capital at Babylon. Uh, but I think that fits far better for Daniel's final kingdom to have been a revived uh, Islamic kingdom, that basically the Islamic caliphate that came up uh, for and was around for many years because they fit the description that Daniel gives. And they had as their capital, and will have as their capital, I should say, the, the city of Babylon. Babylon is the great city in the end. Jerusalem is the holy city. Babylon is the uh, city that basically is against it. And so Babylon will come into play here again. We know that Babylon will come in the end. People have tried to make it figurative that something else in the, some city in the area of Europe will become the Babylon. People have even said New York City will become the Babylon. All sorts of stuff like that. But I think Babylon is Babylon. It has always been the physical Babylon. Babylon. And the uh the city Babylon is seemingly a central figure for the uh, book of Daniel. That all these kingdoms came came about for that. So when he gives this decree, he's giving it to the people here in captive that are in the land of Babylon, and he's telling them, "Hey, I'm, I'm giving you the call. Head on back over there and do this. Go out there." Now these people they've been waiting for seventy years for the promise to return. They had the promise that they would return. They knew that God would bring them back, that he said he would bring them back. So the call is out there. But along the way, things are happening. People are give, gave up on the promise or they traded in on one that was more local and more attainable. You now it's a whole lot easier to take a promise from God that I can grab hold of here than it is for the one that uh, maybe the Bible has said. But that's not what they are to do. The prosperity and the property that they have now that has satisfied many who once hungered for the promises of God. And we still see this in the, in the world today. We have the promises of God, but sometimes we have settled for the property that we have and the prosperity that we get in this kingdom. That we've given up the kingdom that is to, that is to come. Verse 5, And the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. So what you have is a, a small group of people who said, We're going to head back, we're going to answer this call, we're going to go back to it it would seem that the people who came over that probably none of them would go back. Because at best, if they were really young, say they were 10 years old and maybe have some memory of, of the land, well, they're 80 years old now. This is a long journey to make. And they could have been just physically unable to, to make the journey. And if they were any older than that, they are uh, most of them are probably dead. They're not there. So the people that are coming back more than likely, are children of those who were in captivity and possibly even grandchildren of those who were in captivity. And all they had was the stories. They haven't been allowed to to go back to the land. They don't have anything to see. Maybe they've heard people that have come from the land. But they've heard what others have said, and that's all they've got. And based on that, some of them have decided, I'm going to go back to the homeland. I'm going to go back to where we came from. And then some of those who said, no, nah, I don't want to go back, but I'll help you. I'll finance you. I'll give you some uh, some goods. And so here's some silver, here's some gold, here's some goods, here's some livestock, here's some precious things. Here's some things to help you out on your journey. But I myself, I don't want to go. I'm going to just stay here and live out the rest of my days here. So he said here, let's read this again, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord. So I was drawn to these words here, With all whose spirits God had moved. And I wonder, Was this all God reached out to? Or just those who received the move from God to return to the land? Were there other people that God reached out to, and they just didn't receive it? Ah, uh, no, I don't want to do that. I, I'm pretty comfortable right here. I don't really think um, I need to go out there and do that. We'll let. Uh, I heard George down the road. He's going to go. I'll let him go. Uh, man, maybe I'll even help him out, give him some money. Now, if God didn't want to make all of them have all of them make the trip, which ones do you think He desired? I don't know if I was God, I would first of all take those who serve me. I'm looking around here, who in this idolatrous land has continued to serve me? Because the reason they were taken into captivity to begin with was because they gave into idolatry. So I don't want people going back who are going to take idolatry with them. That, that won't work. I heard people, not all the time, people are out in California, they don't like what California's doing. They don't like all the taxes, they don't like all the stuff that's that's happening with it. So let's move out to a state that we like. Well, if you move out to a state that you like and you put the same kind of people in office that turned California into something that you didn't like, then you're gonna turn that place into be the same thing. So you gotta, you know, kind of figure that sort of stuff out. I think God's smart enough to do that. If we bring people back into Israel who honor idols and don't honor my word, we're going to have the same problem we had before. So we need to have people that are just sold out for God. So on that basis, I would say he probably didn't stir everybody up. There are some people He said, you know what, I don't want you. <laughs> I don't want you on my team. Uh, you haven't shown yourself to be very diligent in serving God here. I don't think you're going to do it over there. In fact, you'll probably take some of the people and turn their hearts Against the things of God. So, it is certainly, in my opinion, easy for God to say, no, I'm not going to stir, I don't want all of them to come back. There are some of them, this captivity has not cured them of idolatry. They're still in the area of idolatry. So I want to get those that have served me. I don't want those that follow after the wrong things. I want those who demonstrate a desire to obey my word. If they have obeyed my word in a foreign land, more than likely they'll continue to obey my word in the, in the new land. It would be new to them. Now God may desire to stir many, but reduces that number because of what some have pursued. Just as God desires that all men come to a saving knowledge of Him, but He knows that not all will. He has sent something to stir up people, but not everybody is open to it. Not everybody is, is uh, willing to receive. That that God is sending. So he says, All whose spirits God had moved. It's very possible that God did not move all of them to come. But there are certain ones, uh, we just don't we don't need you here, we don't need you taking it going in this direction. Verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem, and put put in the temple of his gods, and Cyrus, King of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithreda, the treasurer, and counted them out to the Bezar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 39 knives, that, or no, it's 29 knives, that just was a weird one to me, 29 knives, 1,000 silver platters, but 29 knives, 30 gold basins. 410 silver basins of a similar kind and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shazbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So he gave them all these things that the king Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the house of of God that he had put into his own house of worship, some of which were used Probably in idolatrous worship. We know that some of them were brought out on that feast day. I don't know if I'm God. I'm thinking, do I even want them back? Do I want those articles back? How about I'm just making some new ones? But these were the, the original ones. These are, these are old. They go way, way back. They have some history with them. They have a lot more history of doing the right thing than they do being here in Babylon and doing the wrong thing. But it seemed that God was interested in it. We never hear that God says, no, take all those things, melt them down, let's make new ones. I, I never hear God saying that. So apparently he had, uh, some desire to have these things back and moved on Cyrus to send all these things back. Now this thing cost Cyrus anything. It's not like Cyrus said, oh, I'll just give you all this money. No, he came into Babylon. He didn't have these articles before. This is just part of his spoil. And he decides, instead of me taking this and adding it to the spoil that I have, I'm just going to send this on with the captives. Babylonians had lots of other spoil. They had lots of other gold and silver articles. They had uh, other things that they used for idols that were there. He probably kept all those and put them in his spoil. But he saw these particular ones. These were for the house of God. Probably heard some of the things that Daniel said. And even knew that they had taken these things out during the feast. And that didn't go well. The hand appeared. I don't want no hand appearing on the wall for me. And so he may have been moved by that very event that that happened that night and said, you know what? (laughs) These things, I got like a history with them. Let's just send them out. Let's send them out with the captives and whatever they do with them, they do with them. This way they're not here. I'm not responsible for anybody doing anything with them that they shouldn't do and bringing anything down upon my kingdom. Any God who can show up at a feast and with a hand right on the wall, on the wall um, I don't want any part of that. And it may have been something just, just along those lines. I don't need that gold. I don't need that silver that much. Because at this point, this is not a poor king. He has got lots of spoil that he has collected on the way. And now he just hit the jackpot with Babylon. Babylon was a very rich empire. There's a whole lot inside that city that he has. He just took this little bit that was here in about these temple vessels. And he sent them on back. Now, this would still show some kind of sensitivity or submission to Jehovah. Uh, again, he's not I don't think he's a fully submitted one, because as far as I know, he's still worshiping the Persian gods and doing the things with the Persian gods there. He hasn't uh, turned his back on any of those. We don't have any indication that he ever did. But here we, we did this. Now, I put this in, your, in the end here for you. Are you in a place to be stirred by God? Here we had the thing that God stirred Cyrus. He was a heathen king, and God was able to reach him and stir him up to do the things that God wanted. He gave him the ability to conquer, and when you come in here to Babylon, he gave them the commission, I want you to set my people free, and I want you to um, send them on back. Now, again, the prophecy was given for 70 years. 70 years are going to come. That means that if you are someone in the area of Israel, and you were studying these things... Or you just heard Daniel teaching this, you know seventy years means there's going to be a change. Seventy years the prophecy said that Babylon was going to be judged. If Babylon is going to be judged, that means more than likely another nation is coming in. And this one is going to fall. It didn't look like it. It looks so much not like it that Belshazzar is just having this feast. The war is going on outside. The city is under siege and he is just having a party. He doesn't think that any of this stuff is going to go on at all. And so certainly the people that are in captivity have to see this and they probably say, I don't know how they're ever going to get through this wall. This is quite a formidable wall around this city. This is quite a defense that they have on this city. This is a very powerful army that we have. Uh, I don't see any of this kind of thing going on. But the prophecy is for 70 years. It wasn't for 71, 72 or 73 They had to know this is where it's coming coming down at. And we have uh, also prophecies to talk about the end coming. Are we prepared for it? Are we preparing for a change? In order for this prophecy to come about, there had to be a very sudden change. Daniel comes up and he states something with extreme confidence. There is going to be a sudden change this night. This night there's going to be a sudden change. But he has those prophecies in his in his uh, thinking. I know a change is coming. And so when he hears this from God, when he sees the writing on the wall, he has no problem saying, this is going to happen now. This is happening tonight. He believed it because he understood there would be a sudden change, that Babylon would come under judgment, and it was happening tonight. Because God had shown that to him. Sometimes I think, though, even though we follow after God, when God reveals some of these things to us, no, I don't know that it's going to happen that way. I don't know that, no, I look at what's going on over here and well, I just don't know that it's going to go that direction. Daniel had no problem with that. But I ask you this question, are you in a place to be stirred by God? This usually involves letting go of something you hold dear or something you believe was right. There are times I believe something to be right, there's something that I held to be dear. And all of a sudden you get stirred by God. That's not the way it is. What? But you see, there's a stirring. I've been allowed to believe that. I've been allowed to think that all this time. But now it's coming to a place where you need to get that belief right. We need you to be stirred. Cyrus, I need you to get this right. I need this thing done. And you're the man for the job. And so he was stirred. Sometimes we need to understand God is going to stir us. And though something has been all right for us to believe up till now, the time has changed. Letting you go on believing or holding wasn't an issue for God until the day came when there was a need for you to be stirred. Now along the way, there's a whole lot of little stirrings that go on to get you ready for the big stirring that's coming. How will you respond? Is there resistance? God is going to send a few little stirrings. He's going to stir you up over here and stir you up over here. Let's see how they respond. Let's see how they they do. And how I respond to those little stirrings will help me in responding to the big stirring. Because more than likely, there is a big stirring coming for all of us. God says, all right, in order for me to get you to understand this, in order for this revelation to get to you, in order for this to happen, you need to be stirred. And so he gets us ready with some little stirrings on the way. Now, the enemy wants to stir us to embrace beliefs, values, personal views, and so forth that will get in our way of what God is preparing to stir us to do. Well, if we can get them to believe this, just like Jeroboam, if I can get him to believe that the people of Judah will kill him, if I can get him to buy into that, then we can... Keep him from being stirred to the things of God down the road, and get him stirred into the wrong things. That's what the enemy wants to do. You got to make sure that you stand on guard. Keep that belt of truth going on. Abraham was stirred to receive a promise. He was over there in the in the land. God stirred him. I want to make something of you. Get this. I'm stirring you up. I ha- I want to bless all the nations through you. I need you to get this stirred. And so we saw that he had some, some problems accepting the full stirring that was going, but once he did, things began to move. Moses was being stirred by God, but he was resistant to it. Until finally God had to stir him up with a burning bush. <laughs> Mary was stirred to receive the baby Messiah. Wonder how many stirrings she got before that. I don't think that's just the first time that God came and stirred her up. Was on the, the big deal, hey, I want you to, uh, give birth to the baby Messiah. The twelve were stirred and they answered Jesus' call. Paul was stirred and finally gave in. Remember the word that came to him? Paul, how long will you kick against the goads? How long will you kick against the leading? that I've I've been leading you. I've been stirring you all this time. You've been kicking against it. You haven't been flowing through it. Now, here's a big stirring. Either get it or die. (laughs) Peter was stirred to accept a different look at what God saw as unclean. That was a little difficult for him. But he was stirred to accept that. There's a lot of other little stirrings that came along for Peter. John was stirred to look at the future and write it down for us, though it was very shocking and upsetting to him. But he was stirred in this area. When we are stirred, it's not always to move or change, but it is always to receive something we might be resistant to. Cyrus He's a heathen king, but he received God's stirring. He worshiped idols sometimes. I don't know when he came into a knowledge of God and how much of that knowledge he actually walked in. We're not really given a whole lot of indication. But he was given enough of it that he stood up to his own people and said, this is what we're going to do. We are going to set these people free. I'm sure he had people in his administration that said, Why are you doing this? Why would you want to finance these people going in this direction? Why would you want to have anything to do with them going back to their homeland? I'm sure he had people in his kingdom that were resistant to it. But he was stirred by God and he stayed with it. Only a few of the Israelites answered the call. And according to Ezra chapter 2 verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360. It was a small number compared to how many were there. But the 42,360 made the trip and came on down to a land that was beat up, a land that was broken down with the purpose of building the temple. The purpose of taking something that was torn apart and putting it back together again. What do you think God might be stirring you for? What kind of things do you think that God is doing with little stirrings to get you ready? There's something He wants to tell you. There's something He wants to teach you. something He wants to reveal to you. And some of the things that I know, some of the things that you know right now are going to hinder you from receiving those things. But God is, is dealing with that and He's beginning to show you things. He's showing you what His Word says. He's giving you light in his word that you never had before. And the more that I respond to those little stirrings that he gives me, when the big stirring comes, I won't be resistant to it. I'll accept it and I'll move on. Just these examples I gave you, these were some big stirrings. It's important that those people receive those stirrings and move in that direction. And they did. What kind of stirrings are going on now? What kind of big things is God trying to stir us up to for what's coming in these end times? We don't know, but if we don't listen to the little stirrings, if we hang on to those things that we've been deceived on, hang on to those uh, little flesh things, well, I, I just like this thing over here, <laughs> I don't want to give this one up, it's going to hinder us, and we're not going to be in a place. If a king like Cyrus, who is an idolatrous king... In an idolatrous land, a king like him could be used to do something as big as be stirred up by the God of heaven to free the Jewish people, fulfill prophecy, and send them back to build the temple and then eventually the wall. What can God stir up people that are submitted to him to do? Father, we thank you that you will stir us up that you will send us little stirrings along the way. Just as we're walking on through, having a general conversation with you, you may stir us up and show us some things that are to come. Just as the disciples were walking along and talking with Jesus, telling them about the temple, and he spoke some things to them, these stones would be overturned, not one would be left upon another. He stirred them up. And they asked some questions and they gave them some understanding on what was to come. We want to be open to you stirring us up, speaking some things to us. I thank you for what you will do in these areas. We look to make ourselves ready to receive those stirrings. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.